0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, our text will be verses 24 to 32. <clears throat> we started the section on God's wrath Last Lord's Day, as we began in verse 18, speaking of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven, we talked about the variety of ways in which God's wrath is manifested towards man, and we're speaking about that again this morning. When we think of the wrath of God, what comes to mind? These are things that we were talking about last week. What comes to mind when we think of the wrath of God? We could think of things like... The flood. That was a demonstration of God's wrath upon all humanity. It was, a, it was a judgment that came from heaven. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah. We think of how the Lord raises up nations. He uses those nations to conquer other nations or to chastise other nations, punish, judge other nations. We think of the eternal death in hell as the wrath of God, in which the wrath of God is poured out upon the unbeliever. One of the things that were spoken of last week was the misery of sin, being a judgment of God. It is a demonstration of God's wrath, the misery of sin. Now you think about some of the things that Solomon had said in Ecclesiastes, the book that we had just finished on Wednesday nights, as he looks out over his kingdom and just looking at life in general and how miserable life is, the existence of Of Each individual is without God. It is a miserable existence because in his view, speaking of those things, the work of your hands, everything that you're doing, it's a constant, repetitive thing. Every day you're doing the same thing over again. You're never satisfied with anything. Just as he was never satisfied with the pleasures of the world, he was never satisfied with parties, he was never satisfied with wealth. Everything that he indulged himself in, he was never satisfied He did say this in Ecclesiastes three eleven that God has set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. God has set it within man, eternity, and longing for eternity, longing for answers, and they cannot come to an understanding. They are left empty, and so they long for more and are never satisfied, but even more Uh, We're not just understanding necessarily the presence of sin uh, itself as being a judgment of God, which it is. The misery of sin, and generally speaking, being a judgment of God. It is. We can look at that. But our passage today is taking it even further. That what we are looking at today is not just the consequences of sin and the misery that it causes as far as that being the judgment of God, but we are looking at what happens when God judicially abandons a people. To their sin. This is judicial abandonment by God toward a particular people. What kind of misery then is brought on when, as a judgment of God, that He gives them over? That is actually going to be repeated three times in our text today of God handing them over, God giving them over. That's in verses 24, 26, and 28. Happens when God abandons them and He allows them to to go after the the appetites of their their pleasure and their sin and their wickedness. It continually leads them further and further and further into degradation, degrading passions which result in even greater misery. What we are going over today are really sobering truths. One theologian said, this is not, this is not a passage in which you see Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. These are hard truths. These are sobering truths. When God hands people over to their own degrading uh, passions. And he does so, as we are told in this passage, he does so because of their willful rejection and rebellion against him. What happens when a people rebel, seek after their own wickedness, tear their fetters, cast their cords away from the Lord? Romans 1 happens. Keep in mind that the things that we're reading here, these are not sins that lead to judgment. Rather, this is judgment not only upon a nation, but upon the people themselves. So I pray as we work our way through here in this passage that, that our minds would be engaged and our hearts would be receptive to hear. What does the word of God say? What is the characteristic of, of an abandoned people? Well, we're finding it here in Romans 1. We're looking at what happens when God abandons people to their own sins and removes His restraint. Let's look at this together. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 24 of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Father, um, We pray that that you would guide our thoughts today, that you would help us to realize the sobering reality. Father of of willful rejection of you, what it what it results in. And I pray for each one of us here. For each person under the sound of my voice. That you would speak to them, each one of us individually. Bringing great change in our hearts in our minds, even greater resolve, Father, to commit our way to you, but also to seek to pluck the brands out of the, out of the fire. Father, give us understanding. Um, give, us, give us what you desire, Father, from this passage. Work in our hearts by the Spirit of God to apply it. Thank you, Father. That if it weren't for your great grace, your amazing grace, we would also be under your divine wrath and perhaps your judicial abandonment even now. Thank you for your great mercy, for your great love, calling us out of darkness and granting us the privilege of knowing you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I pray, Father, that you would bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, amen. Please be seated. So here in this passage, we have some very sobering truths, a sobering reality. And it is very sobering in the sense that when we read Romans 1, as we were talking about last Lord's Day, we're looking at Romans 1 and we're seeing our own nation at this present time. We often wonder perhaps, not only because of all the the sexual revolution things that have been happening, have happened, continue to happen, but also the abortion issue. You can't murder millions of babies and expect nothing to happen. And here we are. We, we wonder sometimes, well, is God going to judge our nation? Oh, we pray that the Lord would turn and not judge our nation. But we're there. He is judging our nation. And that's the reality. And it's because, it's because of what we're finding here in Romans 1. Why? The question is, is why is it... That in verse 24, we read, therefore, God gave them over. Why did he give them over? What was the sin that was committed in which this, this people that he is referring to, and granted, again, Paul is primarily addressing the Gentiles, and we'll look at why a little later as to, as to why he's only addressing them. But why is it that he gives them over to a depraved mind? Why is it that he gives them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity? What was the sin? Well, when we look back in the previous verses, it was their willful rejection of the knowledge of God. One writer says that sexual perversion is is the result of rejecting the knowledge of God. And that's what we're finding here. God gives them over to the lust of their hearts, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, because professing to be wise, they became fools. And the fool is the one who says there is no God. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Because of the willful rejection, we don't want you, but we, we, are, we have this innate sense of having some kind of a religious experience, and so we're going to come up with other things instead of you And and instead of the creator, we're going to worship your creation. This is willful, gross idolatry which leads into God giving them over. This is what you want? I'm going to allow you to have it. And that's what's happening. This is what's happening when it it comes to uh, God giving them over. And he does so because of their willful rejection of him. I mean, if you think about our own nation and how our own nation has just fallen into such just rejection of God, rejection of anything biblical, rejection of the biblical worldview itself. Why? Why does it happen? Well, ultimately, we can look at because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But also it could be as well that the church allowed the secular world just to come right in. Because there's such a view of, well, it has been. I mean, if you think about the, where, where things started with the sexual revolution and how they just progressed there, what is it that the Christians were doing? The Christians weren't standing and saying, you know, this is wrong because God's word says this is wrong. And you are, are to, to adhere to God because you are accountable to him. They're not telling this to politicians. They're not telling this to the government. Instead, they just give it up. Here, have it, because uh, especially during the 80s, I forget the, the gentleman's name, um, especially when you get into dispensational premillennialism, as it's starting to gain a foothold within the church, everybody thinks that Jesus is coming back next, next Tuesday. And so since he's coming back next Tuesday, anything else that's going on in the nation doesn't matter because we're getting ready to leave. And so, yeah, you want this, have it. We're getting ready to get out of here. And so the church ends up giving up its 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 position in in, in government and in, in, in having an influence there and in calling the government to repentance and calling the government to say you are a deacon of God and you are to minister accordingly. You are to, to do justice in the sense in which God has declared you to do justice. You're accountable to Him. Well, we don't do that because again, so many people, this is we're the generation. We are the generation that is getting ready to be raptured out of here, so it doesn't matter how the rest of the world goes, so when that happens and the secular world begins to take over, guess what? will for rejection of God we're going to come up with our own ideas and our own ethics and our own moralities. The old way is done because new desires are coming in, and we have to make we have to make room for everybody, and so the ethic then becomes utilitarianism that a particular act can be considered good if it brings the greatest pleasure or the greatest good to the masses. And so if the greatest pleasure that people want is, is sexual immoralities and, and abortions and everything else that come with it, who are we to tell them any different? If that's what brings them pleasure, let's, it must be right. And so we give up our standing On a solid solid foundation of what is right and what is wrong, and that is determined by the law of God. God, the creator, says, this is right, this is not. Because what is right is consistent with the very nature of God. What is wrong is in opposition to the nature of God. At best, utilitarianism can only produce relative morality. And that's why you hear people talking today, well, this this is your truth. Well, I just wanted people to, to know my truth. It doesn't matter your truth or my truth. It only matters what is truth. Francis Schaeffer used to call it true truth. What is true truth? And dear friends, when it comes to Christ, Christ is all about truth. He is truth incarnate. And he said, even to Pilate, I came to testify about the truth. The truth matters. And when the truth is rejected, a man's own desires come in and he begins to heap up for himself God's after his own image. And as we've been talking about, you may not see within America particular idols everywhere in which people are bowing down and worshiping them. But they are indeed committing idolatry, and they're committing it in a number of ways. One, because man is the substance of all things, they're looking to man, man is the idol. Or it could be as well, as many churches are, they heap unto themselves a God who is okay with anything that they decide to do with their life. As as, as R.C. Sproul said, if your God is all love, no righteousness, no holiness, no justice, you're serving an idol. And that's the sobering reality. So when you have willful rejection of God, willful rejection of the created order, willful rejection of the law of God, what do you get? You get judicial abandonment. God gave them over. In this context, in in our passage here, as one man says that God exercises his justice not by punishment, but by judicial abandonment. He lets people go their own way. How could he do that? Why would he do that? Have you heard that saying, well... It just doesn't seem right if, if this sin is being committed over here. Why is it that God's going to uh, judicially abandon people because of this sin over here, but not these sins over here? Isn't all sin the same? No, it is not. All sin is not the same. And all you have to do is look in the Old Testament Mosaic Law itself. What one particular thing committed by someone, you know, let's say if they, they steal something, Well, what's the punishment for that? You steal something, you're going to pay back double what you stole. Because the punishment is going to fit the crime. Well, let's say you didn't just steal something. Let's say you murdered someone. Well, what's that punishment? Punishment is you're going to die. You're going to be executed because you murdered another So you have the punishment fitting the crime here, the punishment fitting the crime here. You can't intermix the two. It wouldn't be just to say, well, you murdered this person, so you need to pay restitution uh, to the family. Oh, you stole something over here, so you need to be executed. That's not justice. So when we say things like, all sin is the same... We're not paying attention to how the Scripture describes to us the punishments for sin that are given even in the Old Testament law itself. Even in the New Testament, when Jesus denounces the cities, Woe to you, Chorazin and Capernaum! For if the miracles had been done in Sodom that were done in you, they would have repented. And it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you. What is he saying? He's saying there's going to be degrees of punishment here. Not everybody that, that goes to hell and ends, ends up having the same punishment. There are degrees of punishment in hell. Why is that? Because God is a just God and He He renders correct justice so that the punishment fits the crime. So all sin is not the same. When you have the willful rejection of God committing idolatry, keeping unto yourself a new, a new God, or even doing what the Israelites did when they came out of Egypt. You know, they made the golden calf. They didn't call the golden calf by one of the names of one of the gods in Egypt that looked like a bull, maybe Apis or another god. They called that, that statue Yahweh. They acknowledged that it was Yahweh, Jehovah, their God. But they were worshiping him in an unworthy manner. They did not recognize Him as holy and righteous. So, so many churches do the same today. They go into their churches, they're going to pray, they're going to sing, and yet they're still not going to know the God in whom they are supposed to be teaching everyone about. Why? Because there's a willful rejection of the knowledge of God that is given in Scripture so that anything's going to be allowed in the church. That's idolatry. And so when there's willful rejection... You have judicial abandonment. God gives them over. That's language that's also used of Israel in the Old Testament. God gave them into the hands of their enemies. Because of their rebellion. Or the Lord gave their enemies into their hands. It's the same thing. Except... Here, the Lord gives them over to their evil desires. He gives them over to impurity, to licentious living, to debauchery. The restraints of God are being pulled away. One writer says, God gave them up in the sexual domain. So he withdraws the restraints of a mind steered by common grace, grace that causes many people to live generally, generally moral and decent lives in most situations. So, God's common grace in which He is restraining the wicked from even doing some of the things that they want to do, He says, This is what you want, so I'm going to give it to you. He gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let it be. It's interesting to point, one thing to point out, it is so interesting that even in the midst of speaking of a righteous judgment of God, that, that Paul himself begins into a praise, a praise of God, speaking a good word in light of the righteous judgment of God. He is the blessed one. Now, when he removes his restraints, what happens? For this reason, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, God gave them over, same language, gave them over to degrading passions. These, again, these aren't sins that lead to judgment. This is rather the judgment. This is the judgment of God. One writer says, Paul stresses that God punishes humanity by lifting his restraints. This judicial abandonment lets people go their own way, doing whatever they please. This is a familiar theme. In 1 Samuel 8, Israel begs for a king like all the nations, and he grants the people's foolish wish along with all the woes of a monarchy. Same, same kind of scenario. They exchange for what is natural for the unnatural. You know, some of these passages that are in the New Testament, especially when you get into those ones that are in the Old Testament, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20... And you begin to, or Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20, and you're talking to folks about uh, the issue of, of homosexuality and even other sexual immorality issues. Well, they can relegate that to the Old Testament, and they say, well, there's this big divide here, so that's all Old Testament, uh, but but there's nothing here in the New. And then you begin to bring up uh, passages of Scripture like Romans 1 or First First Timothy uh, 1, First Corinthians 6. And the answer to that, by one particular writer, I think his name was Matthew Vines, uh, was to say that Paul is not talking about committed relationships here. He's probably talking about pederasty. Pederasty is the practice of older men with young boys in the ancient world. But the problem is, is that one, he doesn't use that word even in those other passages. And here, he begins to talk about women, he's not talking about older men and boys. He's saying that the women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. It is contrary to nature is the idea here. Some of your translations may say that. So he is speaking about women. He's going to speak about the men too. Uh, this, this statement, contrary to nature, uh, some Greek and Jewish writers understood that this phrase Uh, was describing deviant sexual acts, especially homosexuality. This is from Plato, Plutarch, Masonius Rufus, Philo, and Josephus all use this kind of language to express that. Uh, Masonius actually says, but of all the sexual but of all sexual relations, those involving adultery are most unlawful and no more tolerable are those of men with men, because it is a monstrous thing and contrary to nature. It is unnatural. Even, even a pagan Greek understood this as well. And we come to that understanding of the light of nature and what the light of nature demonstrates. Even, even if you don't have the written law of God, nature it sh- itself demonstrates the, the order of how things are to be. You look at a woman, you look at a man, it's very, very obvious that they are compatible together. And that's according to nature. So to reject the created order of God is unnatural. Richard Hayes he says homosexual behavior is a sacrament of the anti-religion of humans who refuse to honor God as creator. This is a slippery slope when it comes to uh, when it comes to sexual immoralities. It doesn't start here, but it ends up here. It starts out with sexual immorality even among heterosexuals. Promiscuity, adultery, rape, incest, any other sexual immorality thing that we, can, we can look at within the law of God. This is where it starts in the acceptance of these things. You know, adultery even in some even in some of our states, is still understood as a crime. That if you commit adultery and then you you go to the courts in order to have your divorce, that the one who committed adultery will either have to pay alimony or they're going to lose all the assets. Why? Because it's a punishment. It's a crime. You committed adultery. But think of how accepted that these things are today in, in, in the sense that this isn't punishable anymore. Not really. It's not punishable. You think of how often it happens. Or you think of divorce itself. The issue of divorce being more accepted. It's not just be getting a divorce anymore because of uh, adultery or sexual immoralities or whatever. You can get a divorce for anything. And so you begin here. And it's just the slippery slope. Even further. More things get accepted. Promiscuity is encouraged, it's accepted, and it's accepted across the board. Not just with the secular, but with those who are supposed to be the people of God. It's accepted. What does it lead to? Further and further degradation until God, this is the life you want, hands him over. To do what is unnatural. Now, speaking, just to, just to clarify this, just so we can know for sure what the text says. In 1 Corinthians 6, you read this in verse 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, the words here, effeminate and homosexuals, uh, they, make the, the, they try to make the case that homosexual is a, is a new modern word. That's not what Paul was referring to. Um, in that particular passage of the men who practice homosexuality, there's two Greek words that are used here, malakos and arsenicoites. Malakos means soft, used for soft clothing, sexualized men, and men who are the passive partner in homosexual activity. Our comes from the Greek version of the Old Testament uh, of Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13 when it says, whoever lies with a man as with a woman in bed, they both have done an abomination and are liable to death. The word uh, is denoting men who bed other men in 1 Corinthians 6. So the two words there are forbidding every conceivable type of same-sex activity. There is no such thing as Paul not understanding that there could be a committed relationship, et cetera, et cetera. And again, this is heavy stuff. This is reality. This is sobering reality when it comes to this issue. In the same way, the men abandon the natural function of the woman, burn in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, shameful acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You know, when Paul, again, is talking about the natural function, and he's talking about that which is unnatural, and he's not meaning that which is culturally acceptable, but he's pointing to, um, he points to man's uh, innate understanding through nature of what is natural and what is not. They receive in their own person's their due penalty, that could be in a number of different ways uh, to be understood. You know, when you think of this whole issue, and and you you wonder, okay, well, what what things can be understood in that? Well, we can look at it in a even from homosexual, heterosexual. When you're talking about sexual immorality, you can be talking about uh, the sexually transmitted diseases that are there as being. Part of the, the punishment for the crime that God gives. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting when, when you have all of this talk about committed relationships and all of this. But you, you still see the same thing. You see the misery of sin, even in it all. Either the misery of sin caused by the guilt and the sorrow of what, is, what you're doing. You see the guilt or, or the or the misery of sin in the sense of never being satisfied. Because if you think of it, all they wanted before was to be accepted by society. Then they want you, even though you don't agree with them, to be accepting of them. Then they want to be on the same par as, as everyone else concerning marriage and redefining what marriage is. And then it just keeps going and it keeps going. I was reading the other day that there are... Are interestingly higher levels of domestic violence in same sex couples than in heterosexual couples. Why is that? More misery that is caused by sin? God has placed. Placed man with restraints, by his common grace, those restraints are taken away. And when people are allowed to do whatever it is that they want to do in the sense that God no longer holds them back, it does not bring about what is joyful. We were talking about the transgender stuff last week. Think of all the misery that's caused there by... 28,000 people who have detransitioned. 28,000 thus far. And I didn't just pull that number off of Fox News or somewhere where, wherever else. I was listening to a podcast of two transgender people who were talking about this issue and talking about how wrong it is that kids should be allowed to do this before they're 18. They come up with a number 28,000 who are permanently scarred their bodies mutilated how do you stop this where does it end can you the answer is you can't with with the ethic that's that's permeating society there's no way to do it because it starts with Heterosexuals and adultery and promiscuity. Then it moves into the homosexuals. It moves into the transgenders. And now you have minor attracted people who are wanting their rights too. Minor attracted people, otherwise known as pedophiles. You got the sexualization of children polyamorous relationships, polygamy. How do you stop it? Where is it that you're able to say, okay, this is far enough. You guys can't come no further. When you've swung open the door. Well, this is my truth. That's what these people are doing. This is my truth. On what basis do you stop it now? There's no way to do it when you don't have an objective foundation for what is right and wrong which is the very thing that our country has mostly rejected. What else is affected? Not only because these are things that they're doing with their bodies, they're dishonoring their bodies in these shameful acts is what the word means. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To counterfeit reasoning is what the word means. It means counterfeit reasoning. God gives them over to this. Well, just by the things that we're talking about, you can see the counterfeit reasoning. A man cannot become a woman. A woman cannot become a man. Actually, let me just say this. Those two transgender individuals that were talking on their podcast, I really appreciated a lot of what they said. They were talking about gender dysphoria. And they said, maybe one day there'll be a cure for it. And I thought, wow, that's something that you don't hear because that's supposed to be their truth. And that's their truth. And this is supposed to be, you know, you were created in the wrong gender or whatever. But no, they were actually talking about maybe one day there'll be, be a cure for it. But when you have people, when you have young men who say, I feel like a woman. They don't know what it's like to feel like a woman because they've never been a woman. When you have young ladies who say, I feel like a man, you don't know what it's like to feel like a man because you've never been one. And I would imagine if you would ask most ladies, they would be like, I have no desire whatsoever to be like a man. Especially when you get to know them. But you think... You think of the reasoning, the, the, the counterfeit reasoning that's there. You think of not only uh, of the counterfeit reasoning and that, but again, when you're talking about minor, attracted people I mean and people actually giving credence to that, that is mind-blowing. That you would even give credence to people who would want to hurt children in a sexualized way because that's what they want to do. That's what's going to bring them pleasure. That is unreal to me. But yet, when you have counterfeit reasoning, people are going to think these types of things because God in his judgment has given them over to do exactly what they want to do. And think of, think of the characteristics here, not just of them, but he's going to go into those who, who give hearty approval. They're filled with unrighteousness and wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. You know, that's a lot of what you see in our, in our society today, especially if you disagree. With the masses, if you disagree with the masses, these are the kind of things that you encounter. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. I mean, you think of you think of all of that, especially that last category of people. You you you're, you're having. Insolent, arrogant, and boastful, all right there together. Untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Well, this is this is very similar to what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 8, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 15, when Jesus gives the parable, and the disciples come to him and say, Explain, explain the parable to us, talking about the heart of man. Jesus says in verse 17, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. These, these are the things that that proceed out from a, a an unbelieving heart, an unregenerate heart. Many of the same things that even the Apostle Paul is speaking of here. And although they know the ordinance of God, they either know it by the light of nature or they know it by the written word of God. And they know this, by the way. There was one advocate named Luke Johnson here's what he says. He says, I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says. Through appeals to, the, to linguistic or cultural subtleties, the exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says, but what are we to do with what the text says? I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that Same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. By doing so, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality. At least there's a little bit of honesty there we know what it says, it says what it says but we're not accepting of what it says it would do well just to admit that sort of thing this is what it says and yet even though they know what it says, they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. One writer says this But as bad as it is for those who practice such things, it is even worse for those who give approval to those who practice them. It is one thing to condemn oneself. But in a religion whose second greatest commandment is to love others to give to give approval and thereby encourage to others in their lawless lawlessness is the ultimate and loveless treachery To give approval and thereby encouragement to others in their lawless lawlessness is the ultimate and loveless treachery There are so many. I was reading um, a couple of days ago, whatever, because this is the culture's Pride Month and all of that. You have um, those who who are professing believers who who have this this particular meme that's going around that um, I don't fly the the uh, the gay pride flag outside my house. Um, I forgot what the first reason was, but they do so to tell their neighbor that it's safe there. And I thought, You're you're telling your neighbor that you support them and that they can know that you're not going to judge them and it's going to be safe there. And I thought about that. That 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 statement that To give encouragement to others in their lawlessness is the ultimate and loveless treachery. There is zero love. None. In giving acceptance to the unacceptable. None. The most loving thing that anyone can ever do for our loved ones, for our friends, for whoever that we know regardless if it's this issue or it's another issue, the most loving thing that you can ever do for another is to tell them the truth. Don't leave them in their error. That's not love. That's basically saying, according to the book that I'm supposedly going by, I know what's supposedly, supposedly coming at the end of your life, but I want you to know that I support you heartily in all of this. I want you to know that hopefully God will have mercy. I ain't going to tell you that. But I want you to live your life. I want you to live out your truth. That's, that's not love. That is probably the ultimate form of hate. You have to really hate someone to encourage them in their sin that they're going to endure the judgment of God on. That is hate. What are you to do? You're supposed to be saying, stop. Don't go no further. Let me tell you what's coming. But there's good news because Christ has come. And just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, when he was going into that listing of all of those, he said, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were justified in the name of, of our Lord. You can be delivered from this. If you've ever listened to Rosaria Butterfield, who gives her great testimony, she lived 20 years as a lesbian, as an advocate for the LGBT community, writing a number of articles, everything against the Christian faith, because that's the enemy, because the book says this, and we don't want that. 20 years. And she started uh, into her first uh, relationship when she was in college. She's well into adulthood, twenty years later, obviously. But she put in she put an ad out uh, for someone to give her some understanding of certain things within the Bible and whatever. And a Christian minister took her up on it, and so he contacted her. They sat down together, they talked. Eventually, he got her just to come to the churches to see, look, this is what it's all about. It's not what you think it is. She came, and throughout this, this friendship for three years, coming off and on to the church, she was converted. The Lord converted her heart. And then the hard part came because she had to break it off with her lover And then she felt the alienation of all of her friends that were supposedly so supportive of her. They'll support you whenever you're in agreement. Not so much if you choose to do something different. But she has a wonderful testimony of what God has done. Now she's married, she's had kids, she gives her testimony everywhere. Because God can do that. God is able to do that. We don't tell people, God created you this way. Every single one of us have certain inclinations within our life that lead us into one direction or another into sin. Everybody has certain temptations in their life. And as we battle those temptations, that's, that's good. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to battle those temptations. And regardless, every single person has temptations. And they could be temptations into sexual immoralities, Everybody. But if you then choose to indulge in your temptation, that is a choice, a conscious choice that we make to do that. We are choosing to do that. Now, what then are some things that we can do because this is the sobering reality of it all. It's a judgment of God. It's a slippery slope. It just keeps going further and further. And the misery of sin is, is going to manifest itself in a variety of ways like we've been talking about today. But here's... Let me just cover this real quick. Because one, one of the arguments against you know, the scripture uh, or the scriptural stance... On this issue. Is. Jesus never said anything. About homosexuality. If it's so important. Then surely Jesus would have said something. If we just put our thinking caps on for a moment. Whenever God speaks. In the Old Testament. That is Jesus speaking. Because he is God. You can't divorce the incarnate Christ from the second person of the Trinity who has existed from all eternity. When the word of God says, this is Jesus speaking. Well, why didn't Jesus mention anything in the Gospels? Why why is anything like that recorded? Well, One thing that you can look at is that Jesus did affirm the created order when he talks about male and female from the beginning. And them coming together, this is marriage but he didn't have to say anything to a people who already had the law. They already had the law. So it was not necessary for Jesus to bring this issue up to a people who already had the law. Well, why is Paul bringing this up? Because, again, he's mostly talking to Gentiles who do not have the law. Well, that's that's Paul. What Jesus said is more important. Well, Paul claims that he learned his theology from Jesus in Galatians. So the very thing that Paul says as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying it by the authority of Christ himself. Now, covering that, this is, again, this is a weighty, weighty subject. What are the things that we can do? Well, one of the very things that you can do for those whom you know and that you love is one to express to them your identity is not determined by who you are attracted to. That is not your identity. That is not your purpose in life. That's not what gives you meaning. Your identity is in the one who created you because you are an image bearer of him. That's your identity. That's where you find meaning for your life is that you are an image bearer of God. That's what we tell them because that is true. Every person has dignity and they have value as an image bearer of God. And when you tell that image bearer of God that you're okay the way that you are, And then I want you to live a great life and I want you to live out your truth. You are denying the dignity and the value of that person as an image bearer of God. Again, the most loving thing you can ever do is tell people the truth. They need to hear the truth, and they need to hear what is the solution. This is where I find myself. I find myself being attracted to the same sex. What am I to do? Well, you don't say, well, your life is just hopeless. You can come to Christ, but you're you're just going to have a miserable existence there too because this is never going to be changed for you. Then what are we doing? We're denying the very power of the Holy Spirit of God to change the heart and to give new desires. You think of this whole issue. What is it that's being attacked? First off, the very perfection of God is being attacked. Well, one, either he created you the way that you are to be at, from the very beginning against his law in which he has laid out for us. So that's an unjust God. He created me this way. Or he created me the opposite. He, he created me the wrong sex. He should have created me that over there. Then what are we saying about the Lord? Well, Lord, you made a mistake. This person was supposed to be this gender over here and you made him this gender over here. So now they have to go through all this pain of all these surgeries and they have to take hormones for the rest of their life. God, you made a mistake. Well, men can be with men and women can be with women. And then when, again, you just look at the anatomy of both, you see that they complement each other. Not the opposite. Well, Lord, you created them wrong. Do you not recognize that every single excuse that has come, that comes up in, in defense of this issue is an attack On the very holiness and righteousness and perfection of God. You can't get around it. It is idolatry to say that God is accepting of something that he explicitly says he is not in the scripture. So instead of caving to the culture, we tell the people your identity is not in who you're attracted to. Your identity is an image bearer of God. Don't you know that God has created you? And you have value. You have dignity. Because your identity is in him. You can be delivered from this. Because the Holy Spirit of God changes us. He transforms us. To be something that left to ourselves we would never be. And that, by the way, goes across the board regardless of sexual orientation. The Holy Spirit transforms us. You tell them that there is a great hope in Christ. Because his mercies are new every morning. And that no none are so far gone that they cannot be saved. That Christ cannot do a mighty work within them. And bring them to faith. Because he's done it. He's done it in our own day. He did it in in the time of the Scripture. He can do it. Tell them the truth. Pray for them. Intercede on their behalf. Sometimes, regardless if it's this particular sin or it's another, we all find ourselves somewhere on the spectrum here, always battling against sin, always battling against sexual sin. And often it begins in the mind. It begins in the mind. We feed it. We indulge in it, in our minds. Sometimes it may stay there, but it's still sin. Sometimes we act upon it, and it's sin. But again, it goes back to this, that there is hope in Christ. None are so far gone that they can't be saved. No sin is so debaucherous in the sight of God that you cannot be delivered from it. Sometimes we have to contend with ourselves. and Sometimes we have to be able to force ourselves to see the way of escape that God promises is going to be there. Sometimes we fail. But his mercies are new every morning. And that's the good news. If we want to love our neighbor as ourselves, as what we're commanded to do, then we tell our neighbor the truth. And we tell them in a way that we can actually show concern for them. Because we actually do love them. And we actually do. Care for them. So express that to them. Your identity is in Christ. You have a hope in Christ. Christ can transform you as he has others. Just as he does us, we're still still being transformed often. We still have sins that we contend with. We're still fighting them. But the battle rages on. You don't just give in and say, this is it. So I'm going to celebrate it. That's not how we do things. We don't celebrate the sin for which Christ was punished so severely for. We don't celebrate it. We need to abhor it, fight against it, and ask God to help us and to continually transform us to be what He desires in us. There is hope, dear friends. And there is hope that that is the hope that we tell our friends and our family our loved ones, we don't give up. We pray, we intercede, and we tell them the truth. And I pray that we would all uh, seek to do that. To actually show love is to tell the truth. If you really want to hate someone, tell them a lie. There is no getting around that. I pray that the Lord would help us to have the courage and the resolve to tell the truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for your word. Because it is through your word that we have a true understanding of what is good and right. We have a solid foundation in the very nature of God to understand what is good and right. Father, we recognize that this is this is a tough a tough issue not so much in carrying it out we know what to do it's tough because sometimes fear creeps in our hearts but forgive us for giving ourselves over to fear rather than to trust You can save anyone you desire. None are hopeless. Help us to believe that. May our hearts indeed believe that the gospel is the power of God unto the salvation. Give us the resolve, the, the conviction, to tell the truth, not to lie. Lying is easy. Because it gets us out of doing what we need to do. Help us, Lord. We need you every day to do what is right. To stand firm on what is right. To do what's right in our own life. And to try to help others to do what's right in theirs. Be with us. Father, give us the words to speak. Give us a heart for the lost. Not just to tell them abruptly but to truly show our love and concern for them and to pray for them. Father, we pray for our nation. You can do all things. We recognize your judgment upon us even now. But we know that you can do all things. You can turn, you can turn this, this whole nation around if you desire. We know that you can because you've done it before. You're capable of doing anything you desire. Help us, Lord, to do our part in being ambassadors for Christ, allowing the result to reside with you. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, amen.